Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm so glad to have you here. Today on the show, I am talking about the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida and why not talking about sexual orientation and gender identity, it's a bad idea for all kids, regardless of how they identify. I also share my interview with queer artist, sexual health educator, and doula, Simone Blake. Simone and I discuss the importance of peer-to-peer education, how we are constantly learning as educators ourselves, and she has basically convinced me that anyone who is wanting to have a child should have a doula. And there are ways to make that happen with support from our communities. But first, today in sex. Team, let's talk about the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida. For those who haven't seen it blow up all over their newsfeed, the Don't Say Gay Bill, as dubbed by opponents, essentially would ban teachers from talking about gender identity and sexual orientation in schools from kindergarten to grade three. Uh, But it's a bit more complicated than that. Here's essentially what the bill says, and this is from an Al Jazeera article about it. The bill limits classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity. And it says that such instruction may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with the state standards. It does not specify when such instruction would be considered age appropriate. Ding, ding. First red flag. It also prohibits classroom discussion about sexual orientation or gender identity in certain grade levels or in a specified manner. Additionally, the bill allows parents to sue a school district at the school district's expense if they believe the measure is not being enforced. The bill also prohibits school support service personnel from withholding information regarding a student's mental, emotional, or physical health or well-being. This means that school counselors would have to inform parents or guardians if a student told them that they were gay or trans, even if such disclosure could be harmful to the student. Okay. While the first part of the bill may not sound like a big deal, it effectively erases the identities of kids who are queer and gender non-conforming, as well as their parents or family structures, and it silences them from discussing their families and or their identities at school. When we define gender identity and sexual orientation as inappropriate to discuss in schools, we are effectively saying that LGBTQ plus folks are inappropriate and unnatural. Because talking about marriage and where babies come from hasn't been impacted because the assumption is that by talking about cisgender and heterosexual people, we aren't quote-unquote grooming our children into behaving them. So as an example, where I live in British Columbia, our curriculum for kindergarten to grade three includes discussions on the proper names of body parts, where babies come from, and types of appropriate versus inappropriate touch. Now, beyond building a sense of bodily autonomy amongst young children, we are also keeping them safe from folks who would try to abuse or assault them. By denying children the proper names of all of their body parts, the many different ways that people identify in the world, we are setting them up to not be able to communicate effectively if someone crosses their boundaries. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what promoters of this controversial bill are saying by calling it an anti-grooming bill. Talking to children about their bodies and including the many different ways that folks can exist in the world is a gift, and that does not groom them into becoming queer, because as we know, that's not how it works. But rather, it protects them and keeps them safe from harm from the very people who might be trying to groom them in order to sexually assault them. The other issue is that parents would be able to sue schools that talk to their children about gender identity and sexual orientation, and this could have ramifications in any grade. As stated in a CBC News article about the bill, Democrats have often said the bill's language, particularly the phrases classroom instruction and age appropriate, could be interpreted broadly enough that discussion in any grade could trigger lawsuits from parents and therefore could create a classroom atmosphere where teachers would avoid the subjects. Democrat Senator Jason Pizzo really sums it up. They say, We have failed as a legislature if hundreds of kids stand outside screaming for their rights and you can't explain to 5th graders and 6th graders and 8th graders the simple definitions of your bill. You've failed. 
Now, this is a failure to recognize that LGBTQ folks are born into every conceivable type of family, religion, culture, race, ethnicity around the world. And by denying the right to properly educate children and youth about their bodies, how to communicate their desires, their needs, and their boundaries, we are setting all children up, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity, to feel shame about their bodies and to not be able to advocate for their rights. As a sexual health educator, you can tell that I'm fired up about this because this is essentially attack at the work that I have dedicated my life to and find so vitally important. It's also the reason why podcasts like this exist because we don't have proper education for folks. And this is just one more nail in the coffin of an already pretty abysmal state of sexual health education in the U.S. Huh. <sighs> All to say, I need to like take a breather. So what we're going to do is get into my interview with Simone Blay. Simone and I have a wonderful conversation about our jobs as sexual health educators, how important that is. And I think that's particularly important to talk about in the context that I just laid out for you. We also talk about her work as a postpartum doula, which I had no idea existed. And now I'm fairly convinced that when I decide to have children, a heck yes, I will need the support of a postpartum doula. So without further ado, here is my interview with Simone Blay. Good afternoon, Simone. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, as I said, it's been quite the busy month. Um, but yeah, here now, all is well. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wonder, and we're going to talk about like your work as a doula, as a sex educator, but like just as a like a brief interlude. Is it like March and April just seems to be a busy time with people having babies? Like, is that also like why? You know, I don't know. I know that definitely like nine months in from the pandemic, like or the beginning of lockdown, there was a huge baby boom. Like it was ridiculous. Like even um, the nurses in the hospital were like, no, this is like absolutely a thing. Like it's ridiculous. There's so many babies. Um yeah, I don't know. I think you can probably trace back to like certain dates and be like, mm, Valentine's Day or things like that. That's great. Yeah, I. Uh, it's funny. Uh, you know, I, I think about that as a sex educator as well. There seems to be like times when STIs are higher than others. And I'm like, usually a few weeks after New Year's, usually a few weeks after Valentine's Day, after spring break, you know, so right seems to be when people are getting together again, a few weeks later, that's when our rates go up. So you know, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today and talking about like your work as a, you know, you're a queer artist, you're a sex educator, you're a doula, you have, you hold many different roles. But I wonder, I mean, you know yourself best. Give us a bit of an introduction of like, who is Simone? What kind of work do you, uh, do you like to do that sparks your joy? Sure. Yeah. Who is Simone? Great question. Um, yeah. So my name's Simone Blay and I, yeah, do doula work. So I mostly work as a postpartum doula right now. I do births sometimes when needed or when specifically requested, but I find the lifestyle of a postpartum doula is a lot more manageable than being on call. So currently working as a postpartum doula, um, I also um, created a film in 2020 called Dance Like Everybody's Watching, which explores the lives of Black dancers here in Victoria. And so, yeah, I've been doing workshops since 2020, a lot of uh, conversations locally and all across the country around kind of race and Blackness in Canada. So, um, yeah, there's that. And then um, I also work with the, the Native Youth Sexual Health Network sometimes um, doing sex education and things like that. So, yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of other things that I randomly do that I, I always get requests in my inbox that are like for these very specific niche things. And it's like, can you do this? And I'm like, I'm sure I could. Yeah, let me figure it out. So there's a lot of random things in there, too. But yeah, that, that's basically me. That's great. I know um, uh, my partner's grandmother talked about the importance of randomness and relevance in our lives. And I feel like those two things are up there, right? Some some niche questions where you're like, you know, I I have enough lived experience now. I have enough like, you know, expertise in different things. I could I could figure that out. Like it's it's nice to be in that place and to also like hold all of those 
you know, different ways of knowing and being in the world that you're like, I could, I could apply my skills to this. It was actually a listener of the Love Doctor podcast who recommended that I talk to you. Um, and we have all of these connections, you know, of being in Victoria, um, of both taking gender studies, the University of Victoria, you know, both being artists. So know a lot of similar people kind of in the field. Uh, and I also say to listeners as well, Simone and I are even on the same panel tomorrow at UVic Sexpo event talking about what you missed in sex ed. So right, it's hilarious that our paths have like not like, converged until now well the city has like about 15 people in it like it's (laughs) so it's so small and like really I it's unfortunate because like every time I want to go to Valley Village I cannot like just be in sweatpants because I'm like I will run into nine people I know like there's there's the city's so small so yeah I'm not surprised yeah absolutely so I want to start by talking about uh, your approach to to sexual health education. And, you know, when you and I were having like our pre-conversation leading up to the podcast, talked about lots of different types of uh, training and experiences. So I wonder if you can talk to me yeah, a bit about the, the training and education that, that you've had um, in multiple different communities. Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, I have done an undergraduate degree um, at UVic um, in gender studies and indigenous studies. And so um, a lot of the courses and the research that I did throughout my undergrad in gender studies was um, focused on the topic of of sex and sexuality. I think definitely our gender studies program leans very heavily towards um, a lot of those subjects. And so that's sort of the background that I had. The way that I got into it was that I actually um, just followed the Native Youth Sexual Health Network or Ignition on Instagram. And I just loved the work that they did. I just thought it was so cool. And so I just sent them a DM and I was like, hey, if you ever need like a volunteer for an event or like you ever need anything, like literally just hit me up. Like y'all are so cool. And then they were like, oh, we actually have one of our youth youth facilitators. Um who just moved to Victoria. And so would you like to kind of link up? And I was like, sure. So we went for coffee. And then that person was like, actually, we are doing, um, we were invited to Nome, Alaska, to um, do some sex ed workshops. And we are like one facilitator short, like, would you like to come? And it's in like a month. And I was like, um, Yes. And also like, I know nothing. (laughs) Um, And then that person who has since become a good friend kind of explained to me that the model that Nishin takes is a lot more peer-based. And so it's not about um, being somebody who has all of the answers or who has many degrees or who has like completed training programs, but it's actually about learning in in a similar process to the participants in your workshop. And so not saying like, okay, we're here to teach, but like saying, Hey, like we're here to facilitate. We're also young. I think I was maybe, yeah, maybe 20 at the time or something. And I think that person was like 17. So we're, you know, we're here to figure it out together. Let's find the answers together, which I think is a a really cool approach. Um, Just that peer based model, because it. Um, often kind of creates some, yeah, like participants just feel a bit more free to be vulnerable in some ways, because uh, yeah, you're just sort of, it's relatable. And so um, that was the first time that I did any kind of sex ed. And then we went on from there and I participated in a lot of different other workshops and things like that. And yeah, that was like, five years ago. So I still don't know a ton (laughs) and I still get requests to facilitate. And I always like preface with that where I'm like, I don't have like a degree in like sexual education or anything. Um, but like, I do know some things and here are like, this is the model that I use. And if folks are down for that, then it's like, great, let's move forward. So yeah, kind of a, kind of a wild story how I got into it. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know that it was only like a month out too. They're like, great to meet you. Come with us. Now be, now be a peer educator. Uh, I think that's great as well. Like on your website, when you have your different offerings of the workshops and the, and the other work that you do, 
what I love is how like specific you are. Like you give people ideas of like, you know, I could run a workshop on this or this for you. And I think quite often when people are seeking out sexual health educators are like, I need someone to come into my class and talk about sex. And we're like, well, it isn't just one, the talk. This is an ongoing conversation. So what specifically do you want me to talk about? Right. And so bringing those peer to peer education skills and facilitation skills, I think that's something that's missing a lot in our, you know, kind of Western colonial teaching structures because you know, we're not taught to value the knowledge that that all of us hold and taught that it comes from real top down way. So I don't know, I wonder, like, how is how is that kind of developed your practice that peer to peer education piece? Like, is that still really much embedded in how you would facilitate a workshop is say if you were going into like a grade eight class or something today? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing, I made such a big mistake the other, I think it was a couple months ago, um, where I was asked to go into this school, um, do some sex ed. And I was feeling, cause I'd always facilitated with like co-facilitators, like one or multiple. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Like the, the requests came specifically to me. And so I was like, you know, like, sure. Like I got this, but I was really nervous about it because I'd never done it alone before. So I was like building curriculum and stuff. And the first day I went, it was like a total, like it totally bombed. It was so bad. I was like, I don't even want to go back to this school. This is so brutal. Like everybody was super not receptive. Like I'd set up all these games and they were just like, do we have to participate? I do not want to be talking about this, like that sort of thing. And so um, I was like calling up co-facilitators that night being like please come with me tomorrow I'll do anything like I don't want to do this alone and um when I uh and they I didn't get somebody for the next day but for the next couple weeks that I was going in I did get co-facilitators and it was like night and day like it went so 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 much better and I think um that was a good lesson for me and just especially when you don't have all the knowledge having somebody to bounce off of and go Oh, that's a really great question. Um, I'm, I don't actually know the answer right now, but I'm going to look it up and I'm going to get back to you. Well, I'm just going to pass it off to my co-facilitator. They take on the next little piece. You're looking it up. And then also you're like building the skills to, for other people to find things. So being like, Ooh, I found this on this resource. I just Googled it, but this is a really reliable source to get this sort of information. So you're like building those tools of because you're not always going to be there. They're like, oh, okay, I can go, I can just Google it and go look at this specific resource, which is reliable. And then you have the answer. So yeah, I think like definitely humbling myself and being like, (laughs) work with other people when you don't know what you're doing is very important. I'm I'm joking. Like, I don't not know what I'm doing, but definitely have a lot to learn. Mm. I feel like the farther you go along on the you know, sexual health educator journey, the more you realize you you don't know, right? Because there's just so much to know. And I really appreciate your honesty in sharing that. Like, I think uh, anyone who's who's a teacher in particular, if you talk about sexual health, you will have had days like that where you're like, I don't know. Excellent question. But to be able to build in those media literacy skills directly into what you're doing you know, I've heard some teachers who are like, oh, like the sex sense line through options for sexual health or the texting line at Island Sexual Health. And they'll just use that like in the moment in the classroom. And I'm like, well, yeah, let's demonstrate, you know, to folks how they might actually use it. So excellent like idea, right? To, and then when you have somebody else to throw your ideas off of, it's uh, so much easier. I feel I feel that pressure all the time. So one other thing that we've we've talked about a lot, and I think it's kind of an interesting duality, right? Where you hold a lot of knowledge and recognize that there's so much more knowledge and education that you, that you are like working on and learning, but also thinking about, you know, recognizing the knowledge that you do have versus that ongoing learning and the idea of decentering like that expert, like you said, right? It's not like you need to have multiple years running a sex research institute in order to talk to people about their bodies. Right. So I wonder about what those ideas have been like for you of being called in as an educator, but also decentering the expert in those conversations. Yeah, totally. I think like 
it kind of just naturally happens when you start out by saying, I don't know everything and I'm not going to have the answers to every single question, but I, I do know some things. Um, and I also like have been really surprised over the years too. Um, but it's also been really cool to see the way that sometimes when like I'm in a classroom, the teacher will, I'll say, you know, for example, like, can you get pregnant anytime, like any time of the month? And then I'm like, if you, if you think the answer is yes, put up your hand. And then like the teacher will put up their hand. And then you kind of have that moment of like, okay, like, let's talk about this. And so a lot of moments of, um, especially with the sexy health carnival, which is set up. And so people are walking through, which is a mission project, people who are like in their seventies, people who are in their sixties coming through and not knowing how to put on a condom and things like that. And so I think that is always a really important reminder that like for the kids to see as well, like just because this is my teacher doesn't mean they know everything. And like they're sometimes the teachers are asking the most questions because they're like, Oh, well, what about this? Oh, really? I didn't know that. How does this or that work? And so, yeah, I think like just setting up those learning spaces with the preface that like, we're here to talk about whatever you want to learn about. And so let's figure out how we can do that. And, and then also, you know, I'm sure you all have a lot to teach me as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that intergenerational piece is so interesting as well, right? Like, especially with, you know, some older adults, like you said, if there's someone who's in their sixties or seventies, they'll have all sorts of other knowledge throughout their lives. Like maybe they'll have a real intense knowledge of like, you know, what does a long-term romantic relationship look like? You know, what does it look to um, hold space and to set boundaries with people, but maybe they don't know how to put on a condom, right? So recognizing that, that knowledge at different ages and stages of our lives. Um, and I, I love your example too, of sometimes teachers are the ones who, you know, like sometimes they'll do it very particularly to like get their students to ask questions. They'll be the one, oh, but have you thought about this? Like they'll ask questions and a lot of other ones who they don't have this knowledge, right? And most teachers and educators aren't taught to talk about sexual health uh, in a way that is empowering, in a way that doesn't feel uncomfortable. So one of the trainings that uh, that I've had to to do for my sexual educator training is called a sexual attitudes reassessment, right? Where you, you do like a two or three day workshop where people from all different walks of life come in and talk about their sexual expression, you know, so we're talking about BDSM or kink or non-monogamy and kind of um, a whole spectrum of, of sexual identities. I wonder, like not in that really formal way of doing that, but has that been a part of your own learning of the more exposure you get to different ways of being a sexual being in the world, has that kind of altered how you'll teach, how you facilitate when you come into a classroom or a community space? Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's also really, so a lot of the schools will outsource their sex education. So they'll get somebody here in Victoria from Island Sexual Health, and they are amazing. I always tell people, go get people from Island Sexual Health because they're great, or some local sex educator. Um, and I think that that's, that can be great because often, I mean, teachers are overworked and underpaid and like are maybe just not equipped to create that curriculum. But I also think that it's unfortunate because they know their kids the best. Mm -hmm. And they know their attitudes towards things. They know uh, like kind of the culture in the classroom or maybe some of the attitudes. Um, they know if all of their kids are like go to the same Catholic school and maybe have, um, you know, views on sex that are that are impacted by that or whether they have a bunch of like, you know, it's a hippie school in Victoria and they got a bunch of free love parents who are probably talking about sex all the time. And so. Um, I find that really challenging going into classrooms and not knowing what the culture is and where people are at around these things. Um, and it can be really hard to build curriculum not knowing that um, and to just be like, okay, I'm going to talk about this. And then, you know, you get there and uh, always do like the anonymous question box where people can just write down on a piece of paper their question. I always say, I don't want to know your name. 
don't want to know who you are. Just write the question, put it in the box. I'll ask it, answer them at the end. And like, I went through this whole thing about, you know, the whole, like, you know, it was, it was STIs and yeah, common use and something like that. I think consent as well. And they, one of the questions was like, what is come? And I'm like, oh no, like I've gone through this whole thing. And like this person, this poor kid is sitting there being like, this is maybe the first time that they've like heard this word and they don't know what it is. And and so again, those sorts of things are, you know, they just happen. We also have like often really uh, mixed levels of maturity and experience in one room. But also I think that uh, as somebody who's coming from the outside, I think like that's, that's never the best way. I always think it's best to like, when you can within your own community, within your own school, kind of create curriculum based around the knowledge that you have there. Yeah. Just because it's as an outsider, it's, it's always a bit challenging. There's also the added advantage of the fact that you can come in, say things that maybe couldn't fly in that school culture and then leave if that's what the teachers want, because they don't want to have to deal with the negative repercussions of those conversations themselves. But yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a a good point, right? Where there's some aspects of being an outside educator can be really helpful because you know, the students don't know you. So sometimes they can, there can be a bit more freedom to ask you questions that they're, you know, not going to ask their classroom teacher who they have to see every day. But I think that's a really good point of having an understanding of the needs of the group that you're working with, having an understanding of the culture, maybe things that, you know, discussions you've had in class about other things. Cause I think we make the mistake of putting, you know, sexuality and sexual health into like, one conversation where instead it intersects with so many aspects of, you know, our education of our lives. So I'm kind of wondering now, like, how, how would that work? I almost feel like professional development for educators would be a way better use of their resources and money to bring someone in to work with the teachers on what that could look like in their classrooms, instead of a one off from an educator coming in. I say that also as someone who makes part of their living off of doing that. So like, but still hire us to come into your class and like teach your educators. <laughs> so yeah, like I wonder, and it would extend the lifespan of that as well, right? Where as soon as that educator has more of that understanding and maybe addressed, um, you know, how to talk about it in a way that's more uncomfortable, that doesn't have judgment or shame or bias as a part of it, you know, they're going to be creating a classroom culture, hopefully for many years, instead of, you know, a one hour chunk where they were able to get a couple hundred bucks for someone to come in and and talk to their students. Yeah, I would love to hear from a teacher on, you know, their perspective on it. I think like, definitely having the teacher in the classroom like signaling to all of the students that like they are a safe person to come and talk to about this because we know that the questions don't come up in the classroom they come up like on a Tuesday afternoon when they're reading a book and it has a word in it and they're like I don't know what that means and then they're like oh what is that how does that relate to sex and so knowing that there's somebody there that they can talk to about it I also think not all teachers want to be that teacher (laughs) which is also fair so yeah, it, it, it's a hard one. But um, yeah, teachers are just uh, having a time. They're working so hard, getting paid so little. <laughs> I know, I know. I come from a, a long line of educators in my family. And I'm like, ah, I, I feel you. They're like, great, let's just add one more thing onto my plate of what I have to teach young people about. I interrupt this lovely interview with Simone Blay to highlight how even as a sexual health educator, there is still a ton that we don't know. Basically, there is always room to learn more. That's why I'm excited to be partnering with Beducated, which is the Netflix of sexual wellness. Beducated is an online course platform with lots of different ways to learn from videos and audio to written guides on how to improve various aspects of your sex life. You can learn about solo practice for folks with vulvas and solo practice for folks with penises. What I love is the inclusive language used in their courses and having advice from actual experts and sex educators. One course that I've been enjoying lately is Open Relationships. 
As a polyamorous person myself, I know there is still a ton to learn about jealousy, setting boundaries, and what to do if it doesn't work for you. The Open Relationship course has five modules that take you all the way from why people may choose non-monogamy to how to implement it ethically and with open communication in your life. For listeners of the Love Doctor podcast, you can try all of the Beducated courses for one day free. If you love it, you can get 65% off the yearly pass with my coupon code LOVEDOCTOR. This discount code will be locked in for life. If you want to try month to month to level up your love life, you can join Beducated for $9.99 a month. If you sign up for Beducated now, whether it's yearly or monthly, you will have access to a huge library of courses that honestly has taught me a ton even as a sexual health educator. So check out Beducated.com using the link in the episode description and use the coupon code LOVEDOCTOR to start your sex education journey now. And now, back to my interview with Simone Blay. I'm going to I'm going to shift gears a little bit um and I want to talk about like your work as a doula and maybe just telling, you know, telling myself and and telling the listeners like what is a doula? First tell what what's a doula because I think for some people the, the language might be be different around it. Um what do you see as as your role? Yeah, so um a doula is a position or a, you know, I guess in a job um, that has existed since the beginning of time, but didn't have the name doula. um, And that's like a pretty modern uh, kind of word that we use. But uh, essentially, it's somebody who uh, supports somebody who's giving birth, uh, not in a medical sense, but uh, emotional, physical, spiritual, um, and informational support. So um, somebody who uh, meets them in the prenatal period and helps them create a birth plan um, and then uh, supports them throughout the labor and birth um, by suggesting comfort measures to different positions, um, different things like a TENS machine or massage or uh, getting in the shower um, that can really help with sort of natural pain relief. Um, and also a lot of, uh, doulas, um, do a lot of advocacy in the, uh, hospitals as well. So advocating for their clients' desires, um, and their needs and, um, yeah. And then there are also postpartum doulas, which is, uh, what I do. And so postpartum doulas support during the postpartum period. I provide support for the first three months afterwards. I think medically postpartum is a lot shorter than that. It's just like six weeks, but we all know that shit hits the fan <laughs> and it lasts longer than six weeks. So just kidding. It, does, it doesn't always hit the fan, but sometimes it does. And so I provide support during that time with a lot of sort of uh, support around breastfeeding or chest feeding Um helping parents to get sleep. So I'll do like a shift and I'll do baby care for a few hours while they rest. Um, some sort of, yeah, like, like housekeeping and then also sending people to kind of community resources that I know about. So yeah, that is essentially what a doula and a birth doula and a postpartum doula does. Mm. I love that. I, the idea of having someone with you that whole process, right? Like I think not having had any children myself, but knowing that that is on the horizon, the idea of someone who has like knowledge and training to help you on that, I think with any child, but I think particularly with your first child, like how helpful that would be. Cause I think there's so much um, rhetoric around, particularly, uh, you know, folks with vulvas and like motherhood around, oh, it'll come to you naturally. Like you and your baby will just know what to do. And particularly with, with breastfeeding or care or comfort, things like that. So, and I also think there's these misconceptions that like you either, you have a doula and you have a midwife and you, and you, you know, give birth to your baby squatting in a tub, or you've gone to the hospital. So I'm interested to hear, like, what have you seen in those kind of birthing spaces? And maybe that some of those tensions in in that birthing experience? Yeah, so I definitely came into, I became a doula, because I originally wanted to become a midwife. And so um, we have 
I guess, I don't want to say like a lineage because it was really just my mom, but she um, gave birth to me at home in the bedroom that I lived in until I was 18 and moved out. So I was born in that room with a midwife. And so I feel like I've always had um, like a, a trust in the fact that, yeah, like home birth is possible and, you know, midwives are great and all those sorts of things. Like I grew up hearing good things. And I definitely had that perception of, yeah, like home birth, all natural, you know, at home. And it's just, you know, it's great. And like the hospital, terrible and it's evil. I I think, especially as a racialized woman, like, you know, uh, like experiences in the hospital are not always positive. And I think for a lot of racialized communities, um, there are places of trauma as well. And so I came into it with that perception and, Uh, My experiences have just showed me so many different things. And I think it's a really a false dichotomy between the two. So like on the one camp being like natural and home and positive and the other one being like medical and evil and actually, you know, hospital births can be ceremonial births. They can be beautiful births. They can be amazing. And home births can also not be great. So I also specifically here in BC, um, the vast majority of births that midwives um, attend are in the hospital. So midwives, um, most midwives have hospital privileges, which means that they're able to support you in hospital. And and that's what most of them do. So um, in Canada, only 3% of births are home births Mm -hmm. or out of hospital births. Right. It's funny. That's actually quite a low um, statistic. And I feel like Historically, obviously, that has changed a lot where it was, you know, predominantly all of births were done at home or, you know, or in other like community spaces, let's say, where a midwife or a doula or someone to like assist you, you know, in that process was there. And it kind of speaks to, you know, the medicalization, right, around sex, around pregnancy, around birth. Um, But like you said, like realizing that it's not just this dichotomy, it's a false dichotomy. Both these things exist I wouldn't even say really on a spectrum, maybe like they kind of intermingle in ways that, I don't know, I feel like people need to to come to what's going to work best for them. I'm interested to hear, I know you focus on postpartum as well. And I, and I want to get into that because I think there's so much of after birth that we don't talk about. I'm going to really emphasize the pregnancy and the birthing experience itself, but maybe a bit about, you know, what kind of support do you offer um, or do other doulas offer when it comes to creating a, um, a birthing plan? Like what, what would that process kind of look like? Yeah. So, um, sometimes people create birth plans in childbirth education classes. Other times they might create one with a doula or they can always just do it themselves. Um, but one of the pieces around the birth plan is, um, talking through all of the different sort of options at each stage in labor and how they feel about those options. So um, really thinking through your feelings on, you know, how do you feel about medical pain management? Do you feel really excited to have an epidural or do you, does the thought of that really scare you? Um, Do you want to keep your placenta? Do you want to take it home? Some cultures will bury it under a tree or, um, you know, some cultures eat their placenta. Other people are like, please put it in the incinerator. I want nothing to do with that thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, different types of thing. I, I know, um, I just had a prenatal visit and I asked, um, what, uh, how they felt about sort of, um, that verbal coaching. I know a lot of People love, oh, you're doing great. You got this. Uh, You know, you're doing awesome. And my client was like, "Um, no, thank you. (laughs) That feels inauthentic. Please don't do that. Like, great. So thinking through um, some of the things that are going to come up during the labor and really preparing for it mentally uh, beforehand. And then also having that knowledge, uh, you know, spread throughout the entire birth team. So whether you have a doctor or, um, or a midwife, you know, whether you have a partner or a mom or a best friend who is supporting you and your doula, all being on the same page. Um, also knowing that when you're in the hospital, if 
there's a nurse who keeps offering you, you know, an epidural again and again and again. And everybody on that birth team knows that that was something that they really don't feel like they want to do that other folks can sometimes advocate as well and just have little reminders of like, oh, that's not like what we discussed in the birth plan. Have you changed your mind on that? Or how are you, you know, feeling about it now? Um, And so, yeah, birth plans can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think those questions so often don't come up until people are in the moment or maybe afterwards or like, oh my gosh, I wish um, I had known this or that, you know, my, my, my partner or friend or whoever else could have supported me in these ways. Um, it's funny. It makes me think about conversations I've had around um, sexual health and like romantic boundaries, right? And how are we, you know, there's a lot of um, implicit ideas that we just never actually communicate what those things are that we want because of an idea of what we think it should be or that we think someone will have the same ideas as us, but we've never communicated what those are. Absolutely. Yeah. And we also use this, the acronym of pain in birth, um, because we often talk about, um, I'm teaching childbirth ed tonight, and we were covering this last session, that um, usually pain in our daily life sort of sends, it's an alarm system that sends to our body that something's wrong, like time to freak out, something's wrong, you know, run, run to the hospital or, or run to, you know, whoever like to make this pain stop. Um, but it, during childbirth, we, re, we reframe it so that, um, pain stands for purposeful. So each contraction serves a purpose, um, anticipated. So, you know, it's coming and then you get a break and then, you know, it's coming and then you get a break. So, you know, uh, it's coming every time, um, intermittent. So it's not going to be continuously painful for like, you know, 12 or 20 hours, you'll always get a break. Um, And then N is for normal. So it's normal. This actually means that your baby's coming. This is actually uh, a really great thing. And so, um, yeah, I think like preparation like that to sort of reframe, help people reframe uh, pain and all the different things that they're going to experience before they get into the moment. That's so helpful. Like, Yeah, already I was saying to you right before we got on that I've only witnessed, you know, one like birthing in my life. And that was actually just the summer watching the the birth of my nephew. And just so interesting how that reframing, um, and I can't speak to my sister's experience, but this is um, her third child. And so her understanding of her own body and how it was different from her previous two like pregnancies and births, she was like, okay, something is different. This is what I need. And just having a real understanding of that, but how nice that would have to have had that conversation before you've had two children, right? Like, so she has some knowledge within her body, but it's like, huh. And I don't, and I know that she did a lot of work around having those conversations, but it makes me really think about, again, as I kind of in the next few years, I'll be going down that journey. And I'm like, yeah, I want a doula there like every step of the way, like even like before we get pregnant. And I'm like, can we start? Can we start then? Because like, like pre prenatal? Like, I'm sure there's a doula who would do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it'd be fascinating. So kind of flipping now to to afterbirth and your work as a postpartum doula. You know, I feel like now we're starting to have more discussions, um, particularly around mental health and postpartum depression and kind of that hard transition, right? Your life is is completely changed and now being responsible for this tiny human. Um, you know, your interests, like how did you come to wanting to be doing postpartum specifically? And how do you see that that role? Like, what do you support with? Yeah, so I... It was actually like the first couple births I attended. I just realized, wow, I really don't want to do this. Not that I don't love birth, but being on call. So like having your phone on at all times, uh, you know, the sort of anxiety of checking it during the night because you might get a call from your client. And um, sometimes birth just takes a long time. So maybe you're there for 17 hours and you're just up. And, um, I just very quickly realized that that would not be a sustainable choice for me. Um, and was actually really helpful information in terms of, uh, 
deciding to not go into midwifery as well, because um, we have a lot of midwives who have been, um, who just graduated a few years ago, three years ago, who are like burning out and uh, going into other things. Like it's super, super common. Like um, it's something that is really, yeah, a, a bit of a crisis. It needs to be addressed just because the work is just, not sustainable. And if you have kids, like you kind of just need to have somebody who can care for them at all times, because the middle of the night, you're just getting called and you have to go, you don't have an option. And I, yeah. And so, uh, after having those experiences, I, I still love, uh, reproductive justice. I I still have a huge passion for it. And I love working with my hands. I love working with people and being in people's homes. I just, it makes me very excited and, you know, having new experiences like that. And so, um, I started to see clients that I'd worked with, um, you know, there was so much preparation and you have these, you know, you got this nine months to think about the birth and you're planning and you're, you know, preparing for this one day or maybe a couple days. And, you know, you have the, the nurses there and your doula and maybe your partner and, um, and this birth happens and it's like, great. And then they would go home and it's like, oh my God, what, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. Like I have this baby, it's on me 24 seven. I can't shower. I can't go pee because this baby is here crying all the time. And I started to see like a really big gap in the support at that time. So for midwives, um, their care drops off at, uh, at six weeks. So you're mm-hmm. like officially, um, done the postpartum period from a metal medical standpoint, I believe it's at six weeks. And so, um, a lot of the care just drops off and for a lot of people here, especially who don't have family doctors, it's really, really hard to get one here in, in Victoria. They're kind of like out of care at that point. And mm-hmm. so I, I saw a lot of challenges. I think a lot of them, I think we, there's a big focus on postpartum depression, which is totally valid. I also think it's just postpartum mental health in general. I see a lot of postpartum anxiety, um, a lot of different sort of mood stuff. And I think a lot of it just comes back to like capitalism and neoliberal capitalism because people are just not, people are isolated and they're alone and they're like not seen as quote unquote productive members of society anymore because they're not working maybe for the first time in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are so sort of stratified, like all of our homes are very separate. Um, especially during the pandemic, we're not even, we, I mean, it's changing now, but haven't been able to visit a lot. And so I think a lot of, I just saw a lot, a lot of struggle during that time. Um, and so I thought, you know, this is actually something that I would love to do, provide support during this time. And, um, yeah, and to be able to provide that continuous care. So when, you know, your care provider or whoever it is, or the people stop dropping by with flowers, people start stop wanting to kind of care for you because instead they're just like, oh, your baby's cute. And they just want to like focus on the baby. And it's like, this mom hasn't slept in two days and hasn't eaten, but it's like, oh, I brought the baby a onesie. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, what I will often do is uh, in, in a kind of typical visit, I'll go over and I'll bring some lunch or some dinner. Um, and I'll usually just ask, have you eaten today? And <laughs> the answer is often no. Um, and then I'm like, why, why don't I, you know, take care of baby for a minute while you eat. And then we'll usually chat and just kind of check in about where things are at. So what this, what the challenges are, how they're feeling in that, in that moment. Um, maybe one of the most common struggles that I see is breastfeeding. That is number one. And then exhaustion is usually number two. So yeah, referring them to a lactation consultant, giving some little tips and tricks where I see would be useful around uh, feeding. And, um, and then usually I 
send them off to go take a nap (laughs) or go take a walk or take a shower. I'm like, what are the things that make you feel good before you had a baby? And then I'm like, okay, why don't you do one of those things if that feels helpful? And sometimes uh, the parent just actually wants to talk the entire time because they're like, I haven't talked to a real adult in so long, especially if they have like a toddler and another kid and then now a baby. They're like, I just want to talk to another adult and, you know, shoot the shit. And so we'll just talk. And yeah. And then I also provide sometimes uh, overnight support. So I'll actually stay for eight hours the entire night and I'll do the baby care. So I'll do the changing, uh, burping, putting baby to sleep, all that kind of stuff. And, um, if the parent is, uh, body feeding, I'll bring them every time they're hungry to the bed so that the parent doesn't actually have to get up, get out of bed. I will literally just bring the baby like right to their body. And so they don't have to get it out of bed. The second they're done, I take the baby back and then they go back to sleep. I burp the baby change, put back to sleep. So just, and I mean, those are like, if I do that, it's like once a week, like it's not, um, I think there's, I've heard some sort of like concern around that sort of thing for like, oh, well, that's your time to bond with the baby. And these nights go by so quickly. And I'm like, yeah, but postpartum doulas are not there every day of the week. Usually it's like relief so that that parent can just function the next day a little bit better. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what my life looks like as a postpartum doula. Oh, wow. You've thoroughly convinced me that, uh, yeah, (laughs) having, uh, again, assisted just in, you know, helping with my nephews and my niece. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes that is the best thing that you can do, you know, just as like, you know, as an auntie, as a sister, that's why I can do I'm like, look, like, how can I like look after the child so you can go have a, have a shower and things like that. And I think that isolation in particular would be so difficult. Right. And, and just not wanting to feel like, you know, I think there's so much pressure on like, you have to do everything or to be a good parent, you know, you have to not miss out on any of that time that you're bonding with your child or everything else. And so, that feeling like you need to do it all on your own, but also knowing that that's just unsustainable. Like that's not something that's, that's really available. So yeah, you've thoroughly convinced me. I also just have to shout out um, the nesting doula collective. So I work with um, the nesting doula collective and we are a collective of black indigenous and doulas of color here on the Island. um, And also on the lower mainland and Vancouver area. And so um, we fundraise every year so that um, our clients can access doulas on a sliding scale. So doulas are often kind of seen as like this frivolous, like white middle class thing of like basically having a nanny where it's like, oh, I cannot do all the things. So I shall like, you know, hire somebody. But in reality, care work is something that, you know, everybody deserves care and um it's just often an issue of access. And so our collective uh, works to eliminate that barrier. So all of our clients can pay nothing up to the full amount um, for our services. So um, last year I served 17 families and I think only, I think only a couple of them paid. And so, yeah, it's been really, really epic to, just serve families that you know without our collective fundraisers would not be able to um, receive that support. And so, yeah, I love working with our communities and especially supporting um, teen parents and um, parents who have like perinatal substance use. Um, I just just love it. It's just so great. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you bring that up too, right? Because so often it becomes like a class stratification and like, you know, and embedded with other ideas on like, you know, who does care work, who has access to it and knowing that, you know, if you can remove that barrier of, of having to pay for it, you know, anyone going through that experience of having a child um, could really benefit from that support, but also knowing that your role is, you know, 
meeting folks where they're at and being able to offer that in the collective folks, you know, that I will have that linked in the episode description, um, and on my website as well. So people can go and check that out. Cause I just, it's, it's such a great idea. Right. And I'm cognizant of the fact that like, when I, you know, hopefully if I, if I'm able to get pregnant, that I represent a lot of those um, privileges and ideas of what we pe- people think of, you know, who should ha- who has access to a doula or everything. And it's like, oh, like this white middle class woman, of course she has a doula. And it's like, okay, how do we make sure that, you know, we're having more nuanced conversations about who should have access um, and what are those barriers and knowing that those barriers are, there are structural, they are built into so many of, you know, a lot of the messed up things that are happening in, in our society. So being able to support or being part of a collective like that. Um, yeah. And again, the idea of doing like the fundraising as well, which is why folks go check out the website. We'll have it linked for their next yeah. event. It's also, it's lovely working on a mutual aid model as well, because um, I'm like only accountable to our community. So mm-hmm. like every year when we have the fundraiser, there's always people who like, will run into me on the bus and be like, Hey, I donated $20 to the fundraiser. Like, Oh, Hey, like, and so, um, uh, I believe this year or last year we run, we fundraised $30,000 and mm-hmm. most of that all came from not huge donations, but like $20 here, $10 there, $50 here. And so, um, what we do is we build the collective, um, for our work when we work with our BIPOC communities and so it's literally the community paying my bills and so that forces me to always want to like do the best and show up in the best way because I know that I'm accountable to the communities who are donating to our collective um, who are paying me to do this work for them and so I think it's really really awesome and, and it kind of changes the motivation as opposed to when I work for other you know organizations or you know the government of Canada or whatever, we're kind of like, yeah. you're accountable to them, but you're like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to do my best work. Cause <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point as well. Right. Where, what community are you a part of and who are you, you know, responsible to? And it's not a sense of, you know, having a really understanding of where the money is coming from. Like I think so often we will see donations made as like a PR move for larger companies to feel good about themselves or virtue signal in some way. And instead it's like, no, actually these say thousands of dollars donations from something else can change the impact of the work and who it is reaching. And if it is coming from community themselves and hopefully expanding that. So, you know, even, you know, folks who are listening, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily come folks who live in this community, but if you're wanting to find a way to give back in a way that you know is coming from the community itself, I think that's a really a lovely, lovely way to do it. I'm going to round out our, our conversation there because I feel like that's a, a great way to to end it as well. Um, and I know like you and I have many things that we could uh, talk about and get into, but I wonder if there's anything you want to to leave us with, you know, as the role that you see of yourself taking up in, in the world of, of sexual and reproductive health you know, but maybe information you want people to know moving forward, either about uh, your work as a sex educator, as a doula, final comments. Yeah, I think like, I'm like leaving this conversation just thinking about the ways that our knowledge around birth and around reproductive health, like used to be in communities. And we used to have that knowledge. And it's really been like taken out of communities and put behind closed doors and in doctor's offices or in academies. And I think it gives a lot of us that kind of like white coat syndrome where we just defer to authority when whenever we're told something about our bodies or about birth um, or we're left to learn from, you know, popular culture and media, which can be very uh, sensationalized and, and wrong. And so um I think like just supporting work that is bringing the knowledge back to communities is really awesome. And um, yeah, I, I, (laughs) I can't stop talking about the Netsing Doula Collective because I just love us so much, but we do a lot of capacity building around, we hold uh, birth doula trainings and postpartum doula trainings for 
BIPOC folks um, every uh, every year. And again, it's all accessible kind of on that sliding scale model. And we're, we have very, very few of the folks who are trained end up um, kind of joining the collective, but we love the fact that it's just building capacity and there's more knowledge just out there in community. So um, yeah, I think like for anybody who's interested in just learning more about birth or your body or reproductive health, it's always helpful because you can even just like be that friend that somebody comes to and asks about these things and you just have answers or, you know, you can talk about it with a bit more knowledge. Um, I think that that is truly how our communities, yeah, just like strengthen ourselves and learn to advocate because we know more about our bodies. So yeah, I'm always supportive of people taking any kind of trainings or anything like that. And then also just valuing the knowledge that they already have, knowing that if you have a body, you can trust that you know what it's doing. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to erectile dysfunction expert and men's sexual health educator, Paul Nelson. If you have a question, send me a voice memo to the love doctor podcast at gmail.com or message me on Instagram at dr.leatidy. You can also check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you are hearing, hey, consider leaving a review, sharing it with your friends and letting me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.